This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Our sermon text this morning comes from Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I had, that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is God's word. Please be seated. All right, so the first uh, verse of our text uh, tells us that we're in the middle of a story. Uh, It says, then after 14 years, I, uh, being Paul, of course, I went up again uh, to Jerusalem. And so even in our English translations, even though this is the first verse of the second chapter, uh, this this sentence lets us know that we're in the middle of a story. And so I'm going to review the story of chapter one uh, in part so that we can be ready to understand our passage in chapter two. So somewhere around 46 AD, so about 15 or 16 years uh, after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, somewhere around that time, the apostle Paul planted four churches uh, in the Roman province of Galatia. And we know from the book of Galatians itself, and we know from the book of Acts, that right after Paul left Galatia, uh, false teachers from Jerusalem and from Judea uh, came to Galatia, and they began to discredit Paul's message and Paul's gospel and they began to discredit Paul, uh, his credibility uh, as an apostle. And so Paul writes this in chapter one, just by way of reminder. He says, there are those who want to trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ uh, that I preach to you. And again, we can gather from the New Testament, from Galatians, and from the book of Acts that this is what Paul's opponents said uh, in making their case. They said, we're from Jerusalem, and we know who the apostles are. We know who the 12 were uh, who were with Jesus for those three years during his earthly ministry. We've seen the 12 and we've seen the signs and wonders that they've performed and we've heard the message that Jesus commissioned them to preach. And while we've heard of this Paul guy and we've heard parts of his message, you have to keep in mind that Paul was not with Jesus when Jesus was here on earth for three years. And you have to keep in mind that Paul was not part of the original 12 that Jesus chose when Jesus chose his apostles. And you have to remember that Paul is certainly not equal to Peter and James and John. And most definitely, any time Paul's message disagrees with Peter's message, it's always best to stick with Peter. Uh, Peter, after all, is the rock. 
He, he is the rock on which Jesus said he would build his church. And so Paul's opponents either directly stated or clearly insinuated that Paul's gospel, Paul's message, and Peter's gospel, Peter's message, that they were at odds. His opponents said they're not the same. His opponents said, listen, they're fundamentally different. And so chapter one of Galatians is in large part Paul defending his apostleship so that he can defend his message. And so if you've been with us, you know that Paul has said this. Paul has said, Jesus in his resurrected body appeared to me. Jesus converted me. Jesus spent three years with me in the desert of Arabia. Jesus commissioned me to preach his gospel in Syria and Cilicia. So that is, I was on the north northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. And Paul is saying, yes, I wasn't part of the 12, but I know that I'm an uppercase A apostle because I'm on par with the 12. And Paul is saying, true, I wasn't with them for three years, but I had my three years with Jesus in Arabia. And Paul is saying, true, I, I wasn't at Jesus's ascension when, when he commissioned them with the gospel, but Jesus commissioned me just like he commissioned them. And Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians 15, this is an ongoing argument in Paul's letters, whether or not he's an apostle. And, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he, he says of himself, quote, I'm an untimely born apostle. That means I'm, I'm same in rank as the 12, but there's a different timing to my call compared to, 12, to the 12. And so Paul tells the Galatians at the end of chapter one, and this is directly connected to our passage, he says, after three years in the desert, I went up and I visited with Peter and James being Jesus's brother. I was with them for 15 days and during that time I didn't see anyone else. And so now Paul is, is he's addressing the accusation uh, that he and, and Peter are preaching different gospels, that he and the Jerusalem apostles are, are heralding a different gospel. And so he says, then, chapter two, verse one, in your worship folder insert, uh, this is our text, then. So, so next in the story, after my 15-day visit with Peter and, and Jesus' brother James, then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. But this time, I went with Barnabas and with Titus. And the big point of our text is this. Paul is saying this. I went up and I had a summit with Peter, James, and John because I kept hearing that we were preaching different gospels. And the conclusion of the text is this. Those who seemed influential, verse six, added nothing to me. And verse seven, they saw that Jesus entrusted the same gospel message to me that he entrusted to them. And in verse nine, they gave Barnabas and myself the right hand of fellowship, the right hand of koinonia. It's a word for close friendship, for, for intimate relationship, uh, for mutual partnership. And Paul says, I, I've heard that we've disagreed. So I went and talked to them and we're not just on the same page at very high levels, we're on the exact same page. And he says in verse eight, Peter and I discovered that Jesus was preaching the same gospel through me as he was through him. And so at this point, it's dawning on the Galatians, those original recipients of this epistle, it's dawning on them. It's not Paul versus Peter. It's Paul and Peter versus the false teachers. It's not Paul's gospel or Peter's gospel, which will we choose? It's Jesus's gospel or a false gospel. Paul is saying in chapter one and two, he, he's on this very thin line. He, he's saying, because I'm an apostle, I don't need Peter's blessing, but I have good news. I have his endorsement. Paul is saying, I don't need Peter's permission to preach the gospel Jesus told me to preach, but you need to know I have his partnership. 
The end of verse nine, the text reads this in our English Standard Version translation. It says that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. This is an unnecessary translation, or you might even say it's a bad translation. In the Greek, it only says this, we to the Gentiles, past tense, they to the circumcised, past tense. There's no indication about the future in the Greek, and there's no word for go in the Greek. It's just a statement of fact. Paul is saying when we started chatting, we recognized that Jesus sent and empowered them to bring the one gospel to Jews, and Jesus sent and empowered me to bring that same gospel to the Gentiles at the same time. And so he's saying, gullible Galatians, chapter three, verse one. This is the ultimate question. Not not as Paul with Peter, but are you with Peter and Paul? Are you with the apostles or are you with those who oppose and discredit and lie about the apostles? And so knowing the background and the context for the letter, do you see how the passage paints the Galatians into a corner? This passage forces them to consider if they're hearing and believing the one true gospel or if they're hearing and believing another gospel. And so that's, in fact, the angle that I want us to take in this sermon. We've basically, in the last eight to ten minutes, we've covered the content of the text. But I want to go back through the text, and I want to ask ourselves the same question that Paul is asking the Galatians. Are we on the same page as Peter and Paul, which means are we on the same page as Jesus? Are we singing off the same song sheet? Or are we believing in and hoping in a different gospel? And so to that end, I I see three diagnostics in our passage that are gonna help us answer those questions. Three diagnostics to see if we're really on the same page as the apostles, or probably better said, three diagnostics to see the extent to which we're with the apostles. So in our text, I see a diagnostic for our brains, a diagnostic for our hearts, and a diagnostic for our minds. And I know you're thinking brain and mind, that's the same, it's not the same. I wanna use them in distinct ways, but you'll have to wait to understand that later. So number one, a diagnostic for our brains. Look with me at verse two. The first diagnostic is a comprehension diagnostic. Do we theoretically define the gospel as the apostles did? Verse two, Paul writes this, I went up to Jerusalem because of a revelation and I set before them, that is Peter, James, and John, I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. Okay, the word for set before was used in the Greco-Roman culture uh, to talk of lawyers making their case in a legal setting. Uh, To set before means to present information in a cohesive, linear, compelling fashion. The word is used one other time in the New Testament. It's used of a Roman official laying out the judicial case of the Apostle Paul, laying that case out to another official. And Paul is saying this. We sat in the conference room. We gathered some big tables. We brought in some whiteboards and I presented, I articulated, I delineated, I drew up, I set before them the gospel message that I've been proclaiming to the Gentiles. And then Paul gets excited. This is a hot topic for him. This is an emotional section of the, of the book. He gets excited. He interrupts himself in verses three through five. We'll look at that later. But he picks the line of thought back up in verse six. And from those who seem to be influential, so he's taking the connection back to verse two. Look at the end of that verse. Those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. I drew it up on the whiteboard. They had nothing to add. We're on the same page. 
And so remember, Paul's goal in our passage is not to delineate the content of his message. It's to clearly state he delineated the content of his message to the apostles and they were in agreement. So our text itself doesn't lay out the gospel message in particular terms, but Paul does lay out the gospel uh, in Galatians and in other places in his writing. He, He sets it before us in other places. I'll give you one example. If you have your Bibles, you you can turn to chapter two, verse 16 of Galatians. This is what Peter added nothing to. This is the content of Paul's gospel. We know that a person is not justified. We know that a person is not declared righteous. We know that a person is not made acceptable before God by works of the law, by obedience, by performance, by external actions. He says, but a person is justified, declared righteous, made acceptable to God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what I laid out before them. That's what they added absolutely nothing to. And so in short, the gospel that Paul preached, the the gospel that they added nothing to is this, to be forgiven by God, to be accepted by God, to be in relationship with God, to be loved and adored by God as a child, to be with God forever in paradise. You don't have to personally obey the law of God in any way, but only have to believe that Jesus obeyed the law fully for us in our place and then died for us for our lack of obedience to the law. Paul's gospel on the whiteboard is this, Jesus plus nothing. Paul says, they added nothing to me. And so while Paul's goal in our passage is not to delineate uh, his gospel message, there's one allusion to his gospel's content in our passage. Look down at verses seven through nine. You're gonna see that Paul, again, he gets going in verse seven. And then in parentheses, he interrupts himself in verse eight. But then in verse nine, he gets back to his point. And when he resets his thought from verse seven in verse nine, the one word grace in verse nine is used in the place of the one word gospel in verse seven. In verse seven, he says, they saw the gospel. In verse nine, he says, they perceived or they saw the grace given. What's the point? He's not delineating his message here, but when he summarizes his message here, it's one word, grace. Unmerited favor. Unconditional acceptance. The blessing of God to men without men earning it in any way. And so so here's the diagnostic for our brains. Should be on the screen. It's conceptual. It's linear. It's something that can be set before verse two. It can be whiteboarded. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Faith in Jesus plus no work of my own equals justification. And I think it's really crucial for us to be able to whiteboard, whiteboard the brain, uh, the, excuse me, I think it's crucial for us to be able to whiteboard the gospel uh, in our brains. It's crucial to have this ability to know and to articulate and, and to whiteboard the gospel because when we blow it big time and when we're feeling distant from God and when we're wondering, what does God feel for me? Galatians 2.16 is an example of a place where we can go in the Bible and we can whiteboard the gospel. no. God doesn't accept me. God doesn't love me. God doesn't welcome me. God doesn't uh, bring me in as a child because I obey. God doesn't uh, reject me. God doesn't hate me. God doesn't disown me when I blow it. I'm justified. I'm declared righteous. I'm beloved by God. 
because I have faith in Jesus. He always obeyed. He never blew it. He died the wretched death of one who blew it for me. But also when we've done well, or so we think, uh, the reviewing of the gospel keeps us from pride. We've got to learn to go conceptually to the whiteboard. My behavior, my actions, my obedience to God, it had nothing to do with, and it has nothing to do with why God accepts me and with why God enjoys me and with why God delights in me and with why God has made incredible promises to me. My faith in Jesus Christ and his obedience for me is the means by which I'm justified. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Faith in Jesus plus no work of my own uh, equals justification. Okay, so it's obvious. It's obvious in the passage. The work of the law that the false teachers wanted to add to Jesus was circumcision. Aren't we glad they lost? Verse three, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. And so Paul in verse two says, I set before the apostles this gospel message and before he can give the conclusion in verse six, they added nothing to me. He just blurts it out in verse three. Titus wasn't forced to be circumcised. Good news. It's not Jesus plus circumcision equals salvation. It's Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. And so circumcision is this complex biblical topic that we're gonna actually discuss further in future weeks. But for now, let me just say this, okay? Listen in. In the Old Testament, if a Gentile wanted to join the people of Israel, and if, the, if a Gentile wanted to follow the Lord, if a Gentile wanted to say, I no longer want to be from this country, I want to be a part of the people of God, uh, the people of God said, welcome, you can come in, but you have to be circumcised. In the Old Testament, not only would a convert from a Gentile country have to be circumcised, but they would also have to follow dozens and dozens and dozens of other laws known in the Old Testament as the clean laws or as the ceremonial laws, or as the external laws. And these laws were all about the, external, the externalities of a person. They were all about creating culture among the people of God. Don't eat this, don't touch that, don't wear this. Do this after menstruation, do this after a nocturnal emission, don't work on these days, have festivals on these days. Uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of clean laws, ceremonial laws, cultural laws, external laws. And so in the Old Testament, when a Gentile wanted to go to the temple or a Gentile wanted to go to the tabernacle, when a Gentile said, I want to go to God and I want to approach his special presence there and I want to worship him, they were told, well, you have to be circumcised. And there are these other clean laws that you have to follow. And so the question is, why, why wasn't Paul's opponents right? Why wasn't uh, Titus circumcised? Why did Paul win? because they completely misunderstood the point of the clean laws in the Old Testament. Listen to this. Even if someone obeyed all of the laws pertaining to the exterior body, when they got to the temple to worship God, when they got to the tabernacle to be near God, what did they have to do? Offer a sacrifice. A, a major point, if not the major point of the clean laws was this. It was to teach God's people that if they did everything right externally, they still had to offer a sacrifice because they were unacceptable to God internally. And the point of the clean laws was to show the Israelites that they couldn't clean themselves up before God. They could obey all of those ceremonial laws and they had to obey all of those ceremonial laws. But even when they did that, they still had to offer a sacrifice because their hearts were sinful. They weren't clean on the inside. 
And so because Paul's opponents missed the point and the purpose of the clean laws, thinking that they could clean themselves up for God, they, they also missed the magnitude and the sufficiency and the beauty of Jesus Christ. They missed the fact that Jesus was the man who perfectly obeyed and he perfectly fulfilled the law externally and internally. And when he died in their place, he wasn't just the Israelite who came to God having obeyed the clean laws, but he was the sacrifice to which all other sacrifices point that made God accept us and make us righteous and love us in his sight. And so what happens is because the, the, the opponents of Paul thought that their external cleanliness made them right with God. Uh, they thought that Jesus' sacrifice, uh, they, they did not value it to the extent they needed to value it to understand that it's what's going on inside of you that Jesus had to die for, not what's going on outside of you. And so Paul and Peter in the New Testament church, Acts 15, they declared that Christians didn't need to be circumcised anymore because chapter two, verse 16 no one is counted righteous by God by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Faith in Jesus plus no work of my own equals justification. And so the first diagnostic is one for our brains. Do we understand the content of the message? But the second diagnostic uh, that our passage provides to us is a diagnostic for our hearts. Let me tell you why we need a diagnostic beyond a brain diagnostic. Because biblical faith includes understanding, but biblical faith goes far beyond understanding. Biblical faith includes understanding, but biblical faith goes far beyond understanding. We've used uh, the illustration of the chair uh, to, to find faith over and over at New City. It's not original with us. It's been used by many before us. It's one thing to understand that a chair can hold your weight and give you rest. That's understanding. That's whiteboarding it. It's another thing to sit down in the chair and to trust it with your weight. Faith in the Bible includes understanding and faith in the Bible includes trust, your head and your heart. And so let me prove that we need a diagnostic that goes beyond our brains. In verses one through 10, Peter and Paul are on the same page. They conceptually agree on the gospel. But in verses 11 following, the text we're going to cover next week, Paul tells us of a time where he had to confront Peter because Peter was being a racist. He had to confront Peter because Peter was being a legalist. He had to confront Peter because Peter was reverting back to the clean laws for fear of some Judaizers. And again, we're going to get to it next week, but you just have to see from chapter 2, Peter understood the gospel conceptually, but Peter wasn't living out of the gospel functionally. Listen to this. In our walk with Jesus, our brains are always ahead of our hearts. We are all too often at the place where our minds comprehend the gospel, but our hearts are not enjoying the gospel. So what's the diagnostic for our hearts? It should be on the screen behind me. It's freedom versus slavery. Freedom versus slavery. Pick up in verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The false teachers were not up there saying, good news, I want to bring you into slavery. They were just saying, you need to add circumcision to your faith in Jesus. 
And Paul is saying, that will bring slavery into your life. In Christ, you have freedom. In legalism, you have slavery. In Paul's writings, Paul often talks about uh, being enslaved to sin. He talks about the freedom that we increasingly experience as we grow and mature in the faith. And so he'll, he'll talk about freedom from the power of sin. But in Galatians, Paul talks about freedom not from sin, but he talks about uh, freedom from, from our works being the way in which we earn our salvation. He talks about freedom from the idea that we have to earn God's approval. He's saying in our text that in Christ there's freedom, but in works righteousness there's bondage. And the bondage is something like this. Not that you would whiteboard Jesus plus my works equals salvation, but that you would experience bondage that feels like this. Have I done it right? Have I done enough? Will I be able to do it right in the future? When will I be able to rest? I'm anxious and I'm worried and I'm preoccupied. Paul, Paul is teaching us that any moment we put anything with Jesus besides nothing in order to be saved, as soon as we add anything to Jesus, bondage, weighed down, shackled, oppressed. But in any moment where we truly and fully believe that we have all that we need in Jesus, in any moment where we truly and fully believe that, freedom, peace, inspiration, contentment, joyfulness, hopefulness, jubilance, strength. It's one thing to say, Jesus can hold my weight. It's another thing to sit down and rest. Now, now some, of us, some of us actually know, if you will, what our circumcision is. Some of, some of us actually know what our circumcision is, and, and some of us just need to know, or just know, that we're not free. Uh, some of us know what we put with Jesus in order to feel okay. And some of us need to give serious reflection to discover what we tend to add to Jesus to feel worthy and acceptable. I'm actually gonna ask you this week in community to say to one another, what's my circumcision? It's not circumcision, it's something else. It could be this, I'm okay and I'm acceptable and I'm justified before God because of Jesus and I read my Bible. Or because of Jesus and I've promised to live a better life because I've blown it so much in the past. Not that we would actually put that on the whiteboard, but our lack of freedom tells us that we functionally put something next to Jesus. Or I'll be justified one day because of Jesus and when my kids are obedient. Or I'll be justified and accepted by God and I'll be delighted in by God one day because of Jesus and whenever I can stop looking at porn. Or I'm okay because of Jesus and I have self-control when it comes to money and diet and the computer. Or I'm okay and I'm saved because of Jesus and I preached a good sermon again this week. And so I'm okay for one week or for about one day. You see, anything we add to Jesus and to faith in Jesus, anything we add to him forces us instantly into slavery. Have I done it right? Have I done enough? Will I be able to keep doing it right in the future? I'm anxious, I'm nervous, I'm preoccupied. We, we, we may conceptually understand Jesus plus nothing equals salvation, but, but we, we, we may write on the whiteboard, God is wild about me because of Jesus. We may pass the brain diagnostic, but, but Paul's saying our lack of freedom, our lack of joy, our lack of worship, the lack of our hearts being on fire for Jesus 
It tells us that we're functionally believing in something in addition to Jesus. Peter in the classroom got the gospel. At lunch break in the cafeteria, he did not keep in step with it. He did not live in line with it. He did not live out of it. Slavery for churchgoers like us is this. The chair will hold me, but I refuse to sit, and I'm really tired. Jesus will satisfy me, but I refuse to sink my teeth into him, and man, I'm hungry. Jesus will take my burden, but I won't give it to him, and I'm heavy laden in need of rest. We're at church. We passed the brain diagnostic. That's a good start. But the heart diagnostic tells us the extent to which we actually believe. And the extent to which we actually believe tells us the extent to which we're free. What's your circumcision? If you're brave, ask your community, what's my circumcision? They probably know. Finally, for this morning, a diagnostic for our minds. A diagnostic for our minds. Again, we're looking through this passage with the question on our minds, to what extent are we on the same page with the apostles when it comes to the gospel? Okay, so of course, Paul's main purpose uh, in the text is to inform the Galatians of the fact that he and Peter and James and John and the Jerusalem apostles, they all agree on the gospel. And and to the original audience, the main question uh, is the the question uh, of concept, of content. Uh, The main question is what's going on uh, in their brains. But to us in our situation, we've got to push through the diagnostic for our brain into the diagnostic for our heart and now the diagnostic for our minds. Let me tell you the difference between brain and mind and the way I'm using them this morning. It's the difference between these two questions. What do you think about X and what are you thinking about? So imagine that I'm sitting in my office and I'm looking off into space and I'm not falling asleep, which usually happens around 2.15, but I'm actually very clearly thinking about something. And let's say one of my friends or one of the other coworkers that I work at the office with, let's say they walk in and they ask this question, Ted, what do you think about X? They're asking me to stop thinking about whatever was in my mind and they're asking me to enter into a conceptual conversation about X. But that's totally different than walking in and saying, Ted, what are you thinking about? Brain diagnostic, what do you think about X? Mind diagnostic, what are you thinking about? In our slang, in our vernacular, we say, what's on your mind? Look at verse 10. Only. After agreeing that it's Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. After agreeing that Titus didn't need to be circumcised. Only. They asked us to remember, literally in the Greek, to bring to mind. It's, it's a present ongoing tense. Literally, they asked us to be constantly mindful of the poor. Uh-oh. Third diagnostic, what's on your mind? Now notice, it doesn't say they asked us to do something about the poor. That would be too easy. They asked us to allow the plight of the poor to always be on our mind. Now verse 10, it's not saying uh, that doing something about poverty is the one thing we add to Jesus. Verse 10 is joining Matthew 25 and James chapter two and all the other passages in the Bible that say that those who are truly saved do something about the poor. Or better said, the extent to which we get the gospel is the extent to which the poor are on our minds. Again, Paul wasn't asked to do anything about the poor. 
Listen to this. He was asked to be mindful of the poor whenever he did anything. When buying that house, are we remembering? Are we mindful of the poor? When buying that boat, not saying we can't buy the boat. Paul's just saying they asked us to be mindful of the poor whenever we did anything. When buying that car, are we mindful of the poor? When buying that second house, that second boat, that second car, are we mindful of the poor? How many of us are doing something for the poor so we don't have to think about the poor whenever we do anything? I was sitting in a coffee shop uh, in Lakeland with someone who was investing in me and with a whole bunch of friends from the downtown area. And we had a friend who was a very, very uh, successful lawyer, a uh, very accomplished lawyer. And he, he drove up and parked right on the curb in his brand new seven series BMW. And he came in and he was bragging about how awesome it was and how amazing it was and how beautiful it was and how happy he was. And, and, and this man was not a follower of Jesus, but this man was a friend of our friend who had a ministry in the inner city called Parker Street Ministry. And this man knew that our friend was trying to raise money to feed people and to educate people and to pay staff. And and so my friend who was mentoring me said to this friend, hey, did you happen to think about Tim when you bought the car? And you know what he said? You fool. You can't think about poor people when you buy a car like that. My mentor said, bingo. That's a conversation stopper right there. That's a wet blanket on a friendship right there. Do you see how this is the diagnostic in verse 10? Look at it. Paul writes at the end of the verse, the very thing I was eager to do. Commentators, they're gonna argue over whether this should be past tense or present tense. Some of them are saying it's past tense. Either way, it works well for what we're saying in this sermon. Some say, no, it should read this way, the very thing I had been eagerly doing. We, we know from Acts 11 that in this visit uh, to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas had brought with them offerings from the Gentile Christians for the Jerusalem Christians because the Jerusalem Christians were going through persecution and a severe famine. Paul's like, of course, that's what I'm here for. That's what we do. But I think it's present tense. He says, the very thing I was eager to do, that is keep the poor in mind. After whiteboarding the glorious content of the gospel, after experiencing the freedom of not having to do anything to be a rich child of God. Paul says, as a result of that, I was eager to keep the poor in mind. This is what the gospel will do to a person. And now I think there's a flow to these diagnostics, okay? The mental concepts bring a heart-level freedom that creates an opportunity. Whiteboarding brings a heart-level freedom that creates an opportunity. But it's not an opportunity to live for ourselves, It's not an opportunity to be consumed with ourselves. It's an opportunity to live for other people and be consumed with other people. Paul says it this way in Galatians 5.13. This should sound familiar. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Listen, legalism, adding anything to Jesus, doctrinally or functionally, Legalism makes my life about me. The gospel makes my life about you because Jesus made his life about me. Let's pray. 
Jesus, we thank you that you live such a beautiful life on our behalf. We thank you that you are always mindful of the Father's love. We thank you that you are always in step with the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you are always there to love rich or poor, any in your presence. We thank you, Jesus, that you died the wretched death of the cross for us. We thank you that you died for our unbelief. We thank you that you died for our presumption. We thank you that you died for our pride. We thank you that at the end of this sermon, we go back to the gospel. And the gospel itself will in time produce in us a mind that is like your mind and a heart that is like your heart. Actions like your actions, words like your words. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would give us freedom, that you would give us joy, that you would give us contentment, you would give us rest and peace, that you would give our hearts a steadiness that enables us to live life, not for ourselves, but for other people. Jesus, we thank you that we don't leave here having to do anything, but because you've done everything for us, we can leave here knowing that you'll do things through us. In your name we pray, Jesus. 